Good morning. It's wonderful to see you today. I know we're getting down to the wire here, and you're probably thinking about graduation. Anybody here graduating? They're the, they're the four that are graduating. <laughs> it's going to be a very quick graduation service. <laughs> oh, it's great to see you today. Uh, this semester, as you know, I've been preaching a series on the Old Testament which seeks to demonstrate how Jesus Christ is prefigured in the four key figures of the Old Testament that are most often quoted in the New Testament, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. Uh, in this uh, series, we have sought to demonstrate how Jesus Christ comes as the second Adam, as the new high priest, as the great sacrifice, final sacrifice, our kinsman redeemer, our future prophet, and last two weeks ago, our, uh, the new lawgiver. We talked a bit about how most of us uh, totally understand that Christ fulfilled the law, but we focused actually on the other part, how Christ comes as the new lawgiver. Uh, we reject the idea that the Old Testament uh, should be characterized as the covenant of works, which is then put in tension against the covenant of grace in the New Testament. Uh, we discovered, of course, that Christ does not abolish the law, but he fulfills it and then empowers us of the Spirit for an even deeper obedience unto the law that the Old Testament could never even imagine. And we ended, actually, on uh, the ethos of the kingdom. It's today that we actually come to the next figure, which is David, because you cannot have a kingdom without a king. Absolutely. And so it is in these texts that we begin to see the fulfillment of Jesus Christ as king. And it's interesting that the early church, the first uh, creed of the church, uh, which is our shortest creed, uh, is simply Jesus is Lord, which is interesting. They could have said Jesus is priest. They could have said Jesus is sacrifice. Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is uh, even the new man, the new Adam. But the church uh, really wanted to emphasize the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this comes to us uh, today in the text that were read before you. But in order to really kind of enter into the Old Testament text that was read, we have to actually go back, uh, maybe a bit surprisingly, to 1 Samuel 8, not 2 Samuel 7. Because in 1 Samuel 8, we actually first encounter the kingship. And it is there that we, we realize, and this is kind of the great drama of human frailty and sin and how it works with God's sovereignty, because we find out that, in fact, the birth of the kingship in Israel was not born out of what we would hope would be the narrative, and that is that the people of God said, we want an earthly king to help us to embody and envision the rule and reign of God in our midst. That is not, unfortunately, how it actually reads. What it actually reads is, we want a king to, so we can be like all the other nations around us. Uh, they, wanted, they ended up with a king they chose, uh, Saul was chosen, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you go back to Genesis 49, you'll know that uh, Genesis 49, you know how you have uh, you know, the father giving his, you know, his last blessings on the children, and he gets to dear Benjamin. You will be a ravenous wolf and devour your foes. This is not exactly the greatest sending off present from your father. But he was actually telling them that the Benjamin tribe was actually a devouring tribe. They were, this was not the kingship. Kingship was to come from Judah, right? 
the scepter will not depart from Judah. And so when uh, they finally insist on a king, the prophet Samuel actually tells them that it, he will be a devouring king. And in that text, in uh, 1 Samuel 8, he actually goes through five takes. You know, he will take your sons and he'll make them slaves. He'll take your daughters, make them his perfumers and all this. He'll take your crops. And I mean, the whole thing is this kind of very striking liturgy of how the king will rob the people. And they respond in unison, but we want it anyway. Because we want to be like the other, other nations around us. And of course, we know the story of Saul and the tragedy of that. But the beautiful thing about it is that God responded to that tragedy by instituting a proper kingship in Israel, one that would actually reflect his rule and reign in the world. David, of course, made many errors and mistakes, as we've seen in actually all four of our four figures. We've seen how they made tragic decisions along the way. But despite that, God used them, and God embodied his presence in the midst of, of David. Of course, David was not the one that anybody would have chosen. He wasn't impressive to look at. He was the youngest child. He was a picture of frailty. He was uh, you know, a shepherd. Um, and when they asked for a king when they, from the tribe of, uh, of, of uh, Judah, then when David was brought forth, he was the one they didn't think uh, was even possible. And the Lord said through Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord looks not as man looks. Man looks at the outward things. The Lord looks at the heart. And all through the early narratives of David, we see the amazing uh, just centrality of David's focus on God's kingship, God's lordship. And even when he, when he sins, he comes back with repentance and, and forgiveness. So finally, all this, when he consolidates the kingdom, the ark is brought into the temple and uh, into Jerusalem. And David has this amazing experience, which is read for us, where the Lord says, I will establish your name, your house over you. Your offspring will succeed you, and I will establish your kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me, your throne will be established forever. Now this is a remarkable affirmation of the Davidic kingship in Israel. This is a very humbling moment for David. And from that point on, the expectation emerged because there's no way David could last forever. There's no way with, this, with facing exile and all the top problems with the destruction of the temple. This eventually gets clearly embodied as a messianic hope. So the, essentially they said the Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah. Messiah must come from the house of David. And let's go further, Messiah must come from Bethlehem. You have all this embodied in various texts. For example, uh, Psalm 132 actually takes our Old Testament reading and turns it into an act of worship in 132.11. Um, that whole promise is there. Micah 5.2, you know, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, you know, out of you will come a ruler, though you're the least in the tribes of Judah, of the, the clans of Judah. So you have this promise of Bethlehem in Micah's a prophecy. And of course, Isaiah 9, as you know well, we sing it at Christmas time, you know, unto, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So all of this gets embodied in the Old Testament 
uh, expectation prefiguring the Messiah would come as the king of the world. So the, this is why we read the, the, uh, one of the couple of the sequences in the New Testament on this theme, because when Gabriel appears to Mary at the Annunciation, what does Gabriel say to her? Okay, this is very, very important, because at this, this is like the first day of the whole you know, unfolding ministry of Christ. He's just been announced that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. So at the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel says, he will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Right? Okay, that is the, the uh, uh, you know, in, you, incontrovertible claim of God himself that Christ is the connecting point to fulfill all of those promises. He will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. So there's no way we can go to 2 Samuel 8 uh, and actually interpret it apart from the recognition that Christ fulfills that ultimately as the one who's the eternal king. Then this gets rapidly reinforced all through scripture. The magi come, the, the astronomers, the, the wise men, they come and they bring gifts befitting a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The public ministry, the first words out of the ministry of Christ in his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The rule of God is at hand. He's coming as the king to embody and to institute the rule and reign of God. The other text about the, if David calls him Lord, how can he be the son? This is the great mystery of the whole thing, right? How can, the, how can he be the son of David and yet he's also the Lord of the universe? And, and Jesus actually tweaks the Pharisees on that point a little bit. In Luke eleven twenty, we have, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is to come upon you. So we're seeing the public ministry of Christ in healing and in teaching and in casting out demons is the institution of the rule and reign of God in the world. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Amen? Philippians 2, Paul says, he has been given the name of every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is kingship language. Hebrews 1.8, one of the five texts in the New Testament which actually calls Jesus God. Of the Son it is said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. These are powerful texts. Revelation 5, we see him seated on the throne and all the nations worshiping him. This is yet in our future in the eschaton. Revelation 11, 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the king of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. These are the texts that come to us. Hallelujah, the Lord God, the Almighty, Almighty reigns, Revelation 19, 6. And finally, Revelation 19, you have Christ coming on the white horse, the rider is called Faithful and True. He's crowned with many crowns. He has a robe dipped in blood, acknowledging his sacrifice. Out of his mouth, a two-edged sword. He rules the nations with a scepter. And on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, this is just a little glimpse into this thread that runs through the New Testament. And this is why when Jesus comes, he fulfills it in a way that is so far beyond anything David could have embodied. David ruled an earthly throne. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. 
David won many earthly battles, but Jesus won the great cosmic battle of the universe against the, the, the enemy of our souls. David was but a reflection, sometimes a poor reflection, sometimes better reflection of God's kingly rule. Jesus is the embodiment of the rule and reign of God. David was a man after God's own heart, we're told, but Jesus is the very heart of God himself walking in our midst through the incarnation, the perfect embodiment of the righteous reign and rule of God. So today we can praise him, we can worship him because every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is a great, great truth for us as Christians. We, in a sense, you can say, I don't care how bad things are, how bleak things get, you turn on the news, there's all endless, endless stories of bad news and horrible things happening. But guess what? The kingdoms of this world will become the king of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We can actually look in the back of the book. We already know Jesus wins. We know the culmination of the ages will be the confirmation of who Christ is, and even the last enemy, even death itself, will be placed under his feet. Now, this has huge implications for us, and I've been trying to bring out in each of these series the implications, particularly as Wesleyans. Because one of the things that, though Wesley never said it, I don't think, though Ken Collins is here and he can uh, confirm if he actually did or not, but people often quote Wesley saying things he never actually said, so I'm trying to be careful. I don't think Wesley actually said it, but he believed it. And that is the, the Latin phrase, ecclesia semper reformanda est, the church always in reformation. And one of the things that I love about the Wesleyan uh, kind of development is that Wesley has the perspective to look back on the Reformation and actually build upon it and nuance it and to help us see things that were not fully implemented and fully brought through Reformation in the 16th century period. So the 16th century is not like a closed unit. You know, it's something that happens. Uh, we praise God for it. I never have felt like that our posture, it makes sense, like, historically or theologically, actually, to overly, like, lampoon or lambast the Reformed tradition. Because our point is, we actually are built upon it. We extend it. We, we don't really so much turn it over. We actually just say, okay, that's fine, that's great, but there's more to it. And certainly, in the case of justification by faith, we praise God for that. Uh, but Wesley brought out so many more aspects of grace, didn't he? It wasn't just justifying grace, which we laud as well, as well as any reformer. He brought out prevenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, uh, even glorifying grace. These, this is the great depth of the whole Wesleyan tradition. We saw the, uh, the work of the Reformation on Christ as the central figure of justification, but Wesley brings out the Holy Spirit is a central figure as well of sanctification. Uh, the last week, the whole covenant of law, uh, covenant of works, covenant of grace, we tried to show how Wesley challenged that and brought us a better understanding of the Old Testament than we've had in the past. Another point was the, Reforma the restoration of ecclesiology. Because Reformation, you know, wonderfully gave us, you know, sola fide, sola Christ, solas Christus, you know, sola gratia, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. We praise God for all of that. But where was the sola ecclesia? You know, that, that was the point that was missed. The Protestants have really missed that point. And Wesley said, we have to also remember that God is building a community. It's, it's not just the, it's a, not a king. You can't really have 
a proper celebration of the kingship of Christ without realizing he's building his kingdom. He's calling us in the community. He calls into fellowship with himself. Wesley said, and by the way, this, is, this has got to be one of the most misquoted statements of Wesley, but let's quote it here properly. He said, holy solitaries is a phrase more consistent with the gospel, I'm sorry, holy solitary, solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Now what he's talking about there is the actual corporate nature of the people of God. What it means for us as God's people to be responsive members of the kingdom. Now if we had time and went back to the Old Covenant and really looked at what, were the, what is the ethos of the king, God's rule as exposed in the Old Testament, three main themes come out. Justice, covenant faithfulness, and compassion. Mishpat, Chesed, Rahamim. And throughout the whole Old Testament, those themes keep coming back. That's what God's character represents. That's what it means to be his people in the world. And this is once again where Wesley comes in with a tremendous help to us. Because we all know we've lived in a time where we have dichotomized what you might call the gospel of evangelism and the gospel of social action. We've lived in the legacy of this tragedy for a long time. The gospel evangelism says, uh, proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Invite him into your heart. Call people to repent and believe the gospel, and you'll be saved. Okay, now that when we say saved, that generally means justified. It's part of the problem. Social action would say, uh, well, the church has a cultural mandate to express God's love tangibly through acts of compassion, justice for the poor, homeless, the sick, disenfranchised. Jesus, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was in prison and you visited me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you end up with basically a paradigm where you might say, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa. And we actually put, we have allowed uh, some parts of the church to put these in tension with us. The son other, these things are, we have to choose between the two. In fact, usually there's a whole lot of ways that it happens in terms of social responsibility, either relief or development. We often say, well, uh, it's generally characterized in much of the church as well. Um, social action is a bridge to evangelism. You know, like the, the, if you do this, if you, if you feed the hungry in Lexington, for example, in a, in a soup kitchen, then that might lead you to evangelism. And that, that's the real point of the whole thing. Or perhaps um, leaf and development is a consequence for evangelism. You know, it's kind of like a foothold that you get into the door. Use it as a good foothold. We can do this, and this can maybe provide a space for us to do the other. Or leaf and development are legitimized through evangelism. It doesn't really, it's not legitimate unless, like, you know, you can give some money a, a loaf of bread, but you better have a track in there. Pick the bread up. Oh, there's the fortress of laws or something. So this has really racked the church, and we, we have seen tremendous problems when the church has gone either direction, either separating the uh, evangelism from proper embodiment of the kingdom, and two, people who embody the kingdom in various ways would forget the importance of proclaiming the kingship of Christ. 
Well, what do we find in Wesley? Wesley makes it very clear we must never fail to recognize the unity of word and deed. They're united in the king. That Jesus embodies that. If you look at all the summary statements of Christ's ministry, what does it say? He goes about teaching, casting out demons, healing, and preaching the kingdom of God. That is the summary statement. Jesus embodies all of this in his ministry. We have to also resist, I think, the individualism which asks us to insist that everyone embody all of the ministries of Christ in the world. See, this is where we have to really be grace-filled with one another because God has actually given different gifts for people. Why in the world would the evangelist in North Africa who has given his life to uh, you know, evangelism say to the one, this, maybe a Bible college teacher in the Philippines, I have no need of you because evangelism is the most important ministry of the church. Why would those involved in bearing witness through compassion say to the evangelist, we have no need of you? Why would missionaries out on the field, either evangelists or church planners or people in social responsible ministries, say to those who stay behind to mobilize and support them, we have no need of you? Because all of it together is the manifestation of the beauty of Christ's rule and reign in the world. The point being, the community of the king cannot represent the king individually. It's only represented corporately as we ourselves embody that in the world. And so all authentic ministry must be lived out in the context of the kingship of Jesus Christ. The new creation breaking into the present order. It's only a minimalistic Christianity which asks, what is the least one has to do to become a Christian? We're talking about what it means to embody the fullness of his work in our lives. And I think also we have overly secularized, uh, you know, the, whenever we work as if we are an NGO. When in fact, there are so many examples where we bring perspectives on human tragedy that the world will never recognize. For example, um, who would not understand that in the midst of even the worst poverty, some of the greatest poverty in the world are those who are impoverished in their lack of knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a form of poverty. It's a different kind of poverty. Both are very important. The, uh, the, the need for, when you look at the problems on the internet, like in Baltimore today, certainly the problem is a crime problem, of course. There's a social net, network problem that's very, very deep. But also there's deep spiritual problems there. The church must address all of those collectively and holistically in their world. Biblical faith must be connected every, always to social conversion, personal conversion to the cries of the poor, theological reflection to the care of the environment, core religious values to economic priorities, the call of the community to racial and gender justice, morality to foreign policy, spirituality to politics. All of this must be brought holistically in with the church's wish, witness. witness. When uh, in India, when I worked in North India, one of the, we first went to North India in the early 80s to um, pioneer some work up there. And local people said, don't put a seminary up here. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. All the Christians are in South India. Why would you come up here and start a seminary? We said, well, what should we start then? 
you should start an orphanage. We need an orphanage. We didn't start an orphanage. We started a seminary. We started training, training church planters, training leadership of the church, people like yourselves. And now that's been you know, almost 30 years ago. And they've gone out all over North India. They've planted so many orphanages, more than we could ever have planted. So many schools, sewing centers, endless ministry that flows out of the church. You see, it's the embodied church that manifests itself as the kingdom in the world. I see this over and over and over again. I was telling my class yesterday, one of our, one, just one of our church planning evangelists named Daniel Massey. Uh, Daniel um, was assigned and works in a place called Saharanpur, North India. And if, in the Indian context, uh, the group that currently is the most, has the most animosity toward uh, Christians is a group called RSS. Okay, they're, they're in the news constantly. Uh, they, they hate Christians. They're very public about it. They have beheaded Christians. They have killed Christians. They've burned down countless churches, uh, endless things like that that they've done in India. So uh, Benyos Masi lived in Saharanpur, and right across uh, the way where he lives, or across the, the little street he lives on, there's a, a well-known RSS leader there. So when he would go out, you know, to go shopping or go to the market or whatever, and he would see this man, the man would throw curses upon him. Always throw curses upon him. Why don't you get out of India? What are you doing here? Da, 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 da. Okay, this, is, this man's born and raised in that part of India, but he's treated like a foreigner, like an outsider, and, and insulted daily. So at some point, but, this, but Daniel is a kingdom-minded man, he, and he has runs a training center there. We have some satellite training centers, and he has like a maybe 15 or 20 students that he trains there in this spot. So he has a lot of some rooms where they stay, and he has you know, some places to fix, prepare food and all that. So he heard uh, through the grapevine that this RSS man, uh, daughter, was getting married. Now in India, when you get married, I guess it's true for anywhere, but in India it's a really big deal. You know, all the families come, it's a big deal, it's, you, know, you have to read all the red carpets, a big expense involved in getting having your daughter married. So he knew all this, of course. So he goes to see this man. This is the man that curses him every day when he sees him. And he says to him, says, um, I understand that uh, your daughter is being, being married. I just want you to know my entire home, all our facilities for our housing students, we're opening all that up to your family for you to place your family in, so they have places to stay, because you know, it's very expensive in the hotels and all that. You can stay all right here, right across the street. Very convenient for you. It's all your, whatever is mine is yours. I couldn't believe it. The, eventually, the, the time came. All the family came in there. The, the family lived in there, and he has his wife, Phoebe, and his two children, Joshua and Dominic, and they went around with their, you know, trays of tea, you know. Have, have chai, 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 you know. They were taking their tea, and serving them like biscuits in the morning, serving them breakfast. They completely served them in everything. And this, now, Danny Massey had preached the gospel to this man many, many times over the years, but it was then that he heard the gospel, you see? Because he saw it in a kingdom deed, a radical love that transcended all of the kind of barriers of hatred and animosity that frame our world. And that's partly what happens when the kingdom of God breaks in. It, 
it breaks all the frames of our world. And it's a radical inbreaking of God's grace and God's mercy to a hurting world. And Daniel Massey embodied that, and Northdale still does, and how God has used him and many other ministries like that around North India to in a place where there's so much hatred, so much animosity, to respond with the insertion of God's gracious rule, God's gracious work. Because he saw in, in the faces of those who hate him, or we see in the faces of the immigrant, the face of the homeless, the face of the spiritually downtrodden, we see our own faces. It is not simply that we, in the kingdom, that we have empathy for people or that we do things for people. That's not the kingdom paradigm. We actually take on and embody their pain. It actually becomes our pain. We feel their brokenness. And if we want to serve them because we actually understand their brokenness. Now that is kingdom breaking in. And so my prayer is that David and his great kingship and Jesus Christ, great David's greater son, that we would never simply understand the kingship of Christ as a slogan. Jesus is Lord. It's not a slogan. It has massive implications for how we live our lives how we embody the rule and reign of God. And people should see us and encounter us in our ministries of our churches and have their breath taken away by the powerful embodiment of God's gracious rule in their midst. Thanks be to God. Amen.